have been in a sermon series um, on prayer. A sermon series on prayer. Uh, that's very creative of us. A sermon series on prayer. There's four different installments on this sermon series on prayer. This first installment, and today will be the uh, final message of this installment, is simply we're trying to ask the question or answer the question, why pray? Why pray? In the first week we said we pray to bring glory to God. The problem that many of us have when it comes to prayer is that we start with ourselves. Prayer is very man-centered, but everything that God has given us and God commands of us is for his own glory. And so the proper place to begin with something like prayer is the glory of God. God gets glory when we ask of him and when we, he answers in his own way, he is glorified. The next week, Pastor Josh came to us, and he told us we pray because we are utterly helpless. Here's how Christ said, without me or apart from me, you can do nothing. And how many of us, and, and I, let me raise both hands, are guilty of embarking on many things without consulting Christ? And prayer, God gave us prayer to, let, to remind us that we are helpless and we are utterly dependent upon him to be successful in our endeavors. But then, a couple of weeks ago, prior to the week before Easter, we started to deal with some of our theological tensions because we talked about, we know, we believe, we've been preached to, we've read that God is sovereign. He, he is all-powerful. He is in control. He does as he pleases. And so if God is sovereign, why pray? And so we, we, we attempted to answer that. So then there's one more issue that we've got to deal with. We look at things like Genesis chapter 6, verse 6. That's not our text for this morning. God created the heavens and the earth. He, the crown of his creation was man, Adam, Eve, and they were to be his vice regents, his stewards of all of his creation. Genesis 3, man is deceived by the devil and they fall. And from there, sin enters the world and chaos ensues. And it only gets worse over time. Once we get to Genesis 6, the record is that God saw all the evil and wickedness of man. And here's the record in Genesis 6-6. God regretted. That he made man. We look at something else. 
like Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. God says there's people in Nineveh. And he calls Jonah to go and prophesy and speak to the people of Nineveh who are wicked. And God had pronounced his judgment upon this wicked people. But then in Jonah chapter 3, the people of Nineveh finally repent. And here's the record, Jonah chapter 3 verse 10. When God saw what they did, repented, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And then we have an issue in Exodus, that is our text for the morning, chapter 32. Turn your Bibles to Exodus Chapter number 32. We'll read verses 1 through 14. I will go ahead and forewarn you that this will not be a complete exposition of Exodus chapter 32. Today we're going to deal with a theological issue. And so there's going to be a lot of meat left on the bone from Exodus chapter 32. But we will, you'll see why we chose this text. Exodus chapter number 32, beginning with verse number 1. Here's what it says. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, go down. For your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. 
And behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, leave me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self. And said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. Verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Other versions read like this, 14. And the Lord repented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Other versions go this far. And the Lord changed his mind from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. This is the word of the Lord. In Genesis 6-6, God relents, God regrets that he ever created man. Jonah 3-10, God relents from disaster that he was going to bring upon Nineveh. Here in Exodus 32, God relents or repents from the judgment from wiping out Israel. Here's the thing. It would seem based on today's text that we should pray because we can change the mind of God. The problem that we run into are passages like Numbers chapter 23 verse 10 that says God is not a man that he should lie neither the son of man that he should repent or change his mind. Hath he said and he would not do it? Or hath he spoken and shall he not make it good? Matter of fact, Malachi chapter 3 verse 6, God says of himself, for I the Lord do not change. So, Holy Scripture, which one is it? Does he change or does he not change? Because on one hand, I hear he does not change. But then on the other hand, I hear he repents, which is a change of mind. And so the question that we have to answer in today's sermon is this. 
Does prayer change the mind of God? In order to understand this idea of God changing, we must first understand this theological, it's a big word, but all it means is unchanging. It's the immutability of God. In other words, for God to be immutable, here's what we mean. We mean that God is unchanging in his person, his perfections, his purposes, his promises, and his plans. Give it to me one more time, preacher. God is unchanging in his person, his perfections, his purposes, his promises, and his plans. This idea of the immutability of God means that there is no need for God to change. Matter of fact, we could go so far as to say it is impossible for God to change. Change is always either for the better or for the worse. But one thing that we know about God is that he is absolutely perfect. He's holy. Therefore, improvement and deterioration are impossible. There is no need for God to change because you can't improve upon an already perfect person. He's as perfect as perfect can be. He's God. So there's no need for him to change. So we said God is unchanging in his person, his perfections, his purposes, his promises, and his plans. Now, what we must remember is that immutability does not mean immobility. What, preacher? Exactly. In other words, God is not inflexible. God is not unmovable. God, who is unchanging, however, because God is everywhere, he is surrounded by change. Again, God, though he is unchanging, is surrounded by change. What do you mean? We change in our relationship to him. The sinner becomes a saint. We've changed in our relationship to him. The dynamic of the relationship changes. God did not change. We changed. We change in our relationship to one another. God is surrounded by change. What is the effect that our relationship to one another matters when it comes to change and, and, and God? Because God has said when, we, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, it changed our relationship between uh, ourselves and God. We call that reconciliation. But not only was there a vertical change, there was also a horizontal change. Meaning that we could, there was no longer Jew nor Gentile, male nor female. We were all one in Christ Jesus. We are one new man. And so because we are forgiven, forgiven people forgive other people. 
Here's how Jesus said it. If you, when you are coming to offer your sacrifice, and when you bring it before the altar, if you remember your brother has an ought against him, leave your gift at the altar. That was the one time Jesus didn't sound like a Baptist preacher. <laughs> he said, leave your gift at the altar. Go. Go and make amends. Go and be reconciled to your brother. And then you can come and make your sacrifice. Here's what Jesus was teaching. That when we are not reconciled between one another, and also as Christian brothers and sisters, when there is tension between us and there is no reconciliation, God says, I don't even want you to come before me. God says, this is not an acceptable form of worship when you have hostility in your heart between your brother or sister in Christ. And so then, once we are reconciled with our brother in Christ, or sister in Christ, now God says the situation has changed between you two. God says, now I can respond differently to you. God is always surrounded by change, and because he's surrounded by change, when the situations change or the people change, God responds differently. God did not change. The people in the situation around him changed. So then, we still have this issue, though. Is that what we see here in Exodus chapter number 32? Let's re rehearse the scene together. Moses is up at the mountain. He's having some one-on-one -on -one time with God. And he stays up there so long, the people say, well, we don't know what happened to Moses. Doesn't look like he's coming back. Him and God done eloped. We're left without any hope now. What do we do? We need a God to serve. And we can't see God or the evidence of God right now because he's up there with Moses. So let's build our own God. Let's make our own God. And so they make this golden calf. The problem with them making this golden calf is that just a few chapters earlier, they received the law from God, the Ten Commandments, which said, you shall have no other God before me. And so now they find themselves making their own God, creating their own God, and worshiping this idol. And so now, when God sees this, sees them created and now worshiping it, Moses, he tells Moses, go down from here. Your people have now <laughs> created an idol. You, I'm, I'm laughing. I know this is what my wife's thinking about. This is what we do with our children. When they misbehave, 
I said, Connie, look at your child. <laughs> you need to do something with your child. Get your daughter. Get your son. And, and now God says, Moses, you're people. Because they're acting more like a man, humans. So go get your people. Because now they are worshiping false gods, idol gods. And I'm going to wipe them out and I'll start over with you. The text says that Moses interceded. Not yet. I can't go there yet. I can't go there. And because of this prayer, God responds differently to the changing situation. The text says that God relented. Let's, let's, let's deal with this for a moment. What does this text teach us? First, God remained consistent with his character in that he was grieved by sin. What we learn here is that sin grieves God. God is a jealous God. And he said, my glory I will share with no other. And now his own people that he rescued and redeemed from Egypt are now worshiping another God. They are giving glory to a golden calf. God, we see that sin grieves God. God is holy. So holy that he cannot even look upon sin. But, but I think he was also grieved because now he's seeing that his people are not loving him with all their heart, mind, and soul. Because God is holy, walk with me, justice is demanded. In other words, sin must be dealt with. Sin must be punished. And God determined, I'm going to punish these people by wiping them out. In other words, they were going to get what they deserved. They had broken the law of the most holy God. And friends, all of this is consistent with the nature of God. Remember, the definition of immutability is God is unchanging in his perfections, his plans, his promise, and all them other P words I gave you. God acted in accordance with his own nature when he said, I'm going to wipe them completely out. Can I put a parenthesis in this sermon real quick? I got to give the people in the underground a little more time to cook. The question, why does God wipe out nations? Why does God kill people? Why, why does God send people to hell? God acts in accordance with his nature. These Israelites were getting what they deserved. They chose of their own volition to obey the law of God. 
They chose on their own to create this golden calf, even though God had already told them how to live under his will, how to live holy lives. He told them, don't have no other gods. Serve me and me alone. And so they rightly got what they deserved. Why does God send good people to hell? Because good people get what they deserve. But they're good. They're, but they're not good enough. The standard is the holiness of God. And no one is good enough to meet that holy perfection. So that's why good people go to hell. Because they get what they deserve. They are sinners by nature. And sinners deserve eternal separation from God in hell. I just want to put that little parentheses in there to help you deal with this issue because, but, because that's one of the issues that we run into why people struggle with this faith is because God sends nice people to hell. No, he doesn't. He only meets out his justice. He's the judge. The law has been broken. And without a good advocate... No, 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 not yet, not yet. So Moses hears that this, his people are doomed for destruction. And so the text says Moses intercedes on behalf of Israel. The first thing that Moses does in his prayer is he reminds God that these ain't my people. These are your people. Look at verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, Oh Lord, why does your wrath burn against? Y'all can help me preach this. Your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Moses pleads to God based on his special saving relationship with the children of Israel because now that they are his redeemed people, he's going to act differently towards these redeemed people than he does other people. So God, he says, Moses says, Lord, these are your people. But, but, but God, don't destroy them not only because they are your people, but don't destroy them because you won't get the glory out of this destruction. Watch this. Verse 12, he says, Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of earth? Here's what you got to understand about the book of Exodus. One of the keys to understanding a, a book of the Bible is you got to look for repeated words and phrases and sentences. Here's what, when you read the book of Exodus through and through, here's the one refrain that you will consistently hear. So that they may know that I am the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the one thing you keep hearing. God saves his people so that all the world will know that I am the Lord. Yahweh. 
And Moses says in his prayer, Lord, if you destroy him, the pagans, the heathens, the unsaved will only laugh and say he brought them out so that he could kill them. God, it will taint your witness to the nations if you destroy these people. God, if you destroy your own people, you will not be glorified in this. And then finally, Moses in his prayer appeals to God's own word. Look at verse 13. Remember, Moses says, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Moses, church, prays for God to relent from his judgment based on God's own word. Moses, look what he does. Praise God's word back to God. He doesn't do it to remind God as if God had a memory lapse. No, 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 no. Moses praised God's word back to God to demonstrate that I, as Moses, have faith in your word. Friends, if you want God to move based on your prayer, the key is praying God's will back to him. When you see God really move in scripture, it is those who have who know God's word and then speak God's word back to God to demonstrate their faith in his word. Whatever you ask according to my will is the promise that will I do. God's will has been revealed in his word. So if you want to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not my will but your will, then you have to know God's word and then pray that back to him. And Moses says, Lord, I believe in your word so much, that's why you can't destroy them. Because in your word, you told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you would multiply them. How are you going to do that? If you kill them, and then start over with me. We don't need no more Mosesites. That's not your word. And so, it is faith in God's word that gets God to respond differently to the sin of his own people. It is faith in God's word that gets God to respond differently. Verse 14, God relented from the disaster that he has spoken of bringing on his people. Now, we're still trying to deal with this issue. Does prayer change the mind of God? It's important that we understand the original language here when it says he relented or he repented. That word means to be sorry, to be comforted, to console oneself. It is to have compassion or mercy. And so what happens here is that because of Moses' intercession, 
God is moved by compassion. He was consoled in himself. And that's why he preserved his own people. This response by God is still consistent with God's character. God did not change in who he was as a person. His character did not change based on him relenting from uh, destroying these people. Matter of fact, God's going to reveal about himself in two more chapters, Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. Here's what he's going to reveal about himself, his character, the Lord. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving the iniquity and transgression and sin. This is what God reveals about himself later on. So when God relents from judging the Israelite and destroys them, he still acts in accordance with his character. He's still immutable. He's unchanging in his perfections, in his nature, in his essence, in his attributes when he relents. So therefore, my position, and I said all that to say this, God did not change. Moses did not change the mind of God. People changed. And because people changed, God responded differently. God acts differently in this situation because of Moses. Moses here makes all the difference. Before I get there, even in, just so you understand, if we ever, if you ever read the word repent, as it pertains to God, know that when God repents in Scripture, one, um, how do I say this? This is Human description of the emotion of God. Thank you. God is spirit. He's not the son of man. And so God, in revealing himself, stoops down enough to talk baby talk to us. To help us understand who he is. So this is man's, this is the best that man could do to understand what was happening in God. He said God repented or God relented. So we have to understand that this is man's description of God's emotions. So that doesn't necessarily mean that God changed his mind. Our baby talk makes it seem like it did. But we must understand that whenever Scripture uses this idea of God repenting, it is never repenting of sin. It is always God repenting from judgment. And rather than that being an issue for us, by the way, this is never an issue in the Bible. They they just assume it, that God can be sovereign and man can be responsible. 
It, nowhere in Scripture is there just this ongoing dialogue to help us understand the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. <laughs> this, this is all our problem. Nobody deals with this issue of, should we pray if God is sovereign? Or can we change the mind of God? It's not even an issue in Scripture. So rather than it being the, this idea of God being sovereign and God uh, being a providential God, God, God foreordaining things from the beginning of the earth, rather than it keeping us from prayer, this ought to be a cause of celebration. That if God does repent, it's him not giving us what we really do deserve. That's what we call mercy. Okay, I'm ready now, Carson. I'm going to go there. <laughs> Moses made all the difference here. If it had not been for Moses, the people of Israel would have been wiped out. They would have been destroyed. Moses here stood between holy God and sinful man. Moses finally is fulfilling the role for which God called him. God chose Moses to be the mediator. The point to reconcile God back to sinful man. Moses here is a type of a greater Moses who is to come. Moses could only do it for those people. So God sent a better Moses in the man Christ Jesus. And Jesus is the mediator between God and sinful man. When we weren't good enough to die for our own self, God sent Jesus Christ to die our death for the sins we committed. He is our mediator. And God said, I'm going to repent from this judgment that they deserve. And I'm going to give them grace and mercy and love and kindness and patience. And so whether you want to argue with me some more and think God changed his mind, if that's your conclusion, I'm glad he changed his mind on me because I know I deserved hell, but he loved me enough. Hey! So to answer your question, does prayer change the mind of God? No. But prayer changes things. God foreordained that he would act differently in certain, certain situations when his people changed their minds. Jesus is our greater Moses. I'm so glad that Jesus interceded when we rightly deserved judgment. That's a good place to stop. Let's stand.